Did yeah. somebody say poop joke? Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This show is sponsored by Heroku Postgres. They're the largest provider of Postgres databases in the world and provide the ability for you to fork and follow your database just like your code. There's easy sharing through data clips, or just for your data, and to date they have never lost a byte of data. So go and sign up at postgres.heroku.com. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 107 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Katrina Owen. Hello. Avdi Grimm. Hello. David Brady. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and I'm going to be impostering both Josh Susser and James Edward Gray today. We also have a special guest, and that is Tim, is it Chevalier? Chevalier. Chevalier. That's not bad. No, it, it's French. And it, it is. It looks Frenchish, so I said it Frenchish, I guess. Anyway, uh, do you want to introduce yourself really quick? Sure. My name's Tim Chevalier, and right now I'm a research engineer at Mozilla. I work on the Rust programming language, but in my copious free time, um, I blog at geekfeminism.org and on Dreamwith about uh, sort of the social aspects of tech, especially diversity and intersectionality, and um, I wrote a longish blog post about six months ago about imposter syndrome, which is probably why I'm here today. Awesome. So we, we brought you on to talk about imposter syndrome, and the very little that I've heard about it, I know I've experienced it, I know a few others on the show have experienced it depending on their situation. Can you explain what it is really quickly? Sure. Um, well, I would define it as the feeling that wherever you are, no matter what level of success you've achieved, whether in school or in a job or in the open source world as a volunteer or anywhere else, you're only there because you've been faking it and you've been convincing people that you're good at what you're doing, maybe just by the power of your sheer good looks and charm or maybe some other way but you know deep down you you believe you're just really not as good as everybody else and they just don't know it yet and someday soon they're going to find out and they're going to humiliate you in public by showing that you're just not as good as they've thought you were before and it's all going to come crashing down so that fear is imposter syndrome and i think it's something that's really really common um, especially in the tech world where people really define themselves by their intelligence, which is a big, uh, complicated concept in itself. But the more you're in a community where people define themselves by their cleverness and their intelligence, I think the more people are going to have imposter syndrome. With that said, it's it doesn't seem to be evenly distributed. The more marginalized groups you're in, I think the more likely you are to experience it. Interesting. Because so, I feel that a lot, but I got nothing but first world problems, right? I mean, I am not <laughs> I am not very marginal. I mean, I've got a few axes in which I'm marginalized, but I mean, they're tiny and they're, you know, made up for by my huge privileges. So 
That's an yeah. interesting. I mean, thought. I think you can be, you know, a hetero cis abled guy who's white and who's, you know, middle class and, and be all of these things and still have imposter syndrome. And I think it's because in the tech community, there's just so much pressure on people to demonstrate their intelligence and there's so much belief that it's a meritocracy and there's yeah. all this pressure and it makes people wonder, well, what if I'm not really as good as everybody else seems to be. And so somebody can have, you know, all of the advantages to start with that you can have and still experience this because that pressure is so strong. I just think it mm -hmm. it makes it worse when you sort of also have the world sort of whispering in your ear, for example, oh, you know, you're a woman. Women aren't very good at programming. Or, oh, you know, you're a person right. of color. Well, we don't see any other people of color here. Right. Well, that's interesting to me because I, I, um, this is like the first time that I realized that it was, is or is considered to be more of a problem for 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 women or for other minorities in the tech field. I just always thought it was something that, like, because I'm, I've, you know, I've experienced it my whole career. And I just kind of figured, you know, well, either either I'm inferior or, uh, hopefully everybody feels this way. <laughs> so, so. I guess I'll just go ahead and ask a, a really dangerous question then, and you can slap me down if it's if it's wrong. You can educate me kindly if 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 I'm wrong. Then is are are like like women and minorities more likely to have imposter syndrome, or do they just have it worse or suffer more from it when they have it? Well, I can't really you know cite studies on that. There probably have been some, but I don't know about them offhand. So to really answer the question, you would have to look at evidence or perhaps, you know, go to grad school and right. uh, do some studies on it if they haven't been done. Get a, get a degree right. in social work. Yeah, exactly. But anecdotally, and of course, my friend group is sort of biased as well on that, you know, I know more people in the tech community who are women or who are queer than maybe a lot of people do. But I certainly feel like it's a lot more common. Um, so there's a concept called stereotype threat, which is something that's been studied in sociology. And that refers to when you tell somebody that they're not expected to be as good at something because they're a woman or because they're a person of color or so on. And you don't even have to tell them as if you believe it. You can just say, well, you know, a lot of people think women aren't as good as math. Uh, I think they're wrong, but a lot of people believe this. And you could put it that way and studies have shown that that just saying that will decrease people's performance if they're in that group that you're talking about yeah. and you ask them to do a task right after that. And I think that's really closely related to imposter syndrome because the thing about imposter syndrome is it often can be a self-fulfilling prophecy where yeah. just that belief kind of actually makes you do worse. And if you just hadn't had that belief, you could have done fine. So my basic answer to your question is I don't know, but but just anecdotally, it certainly seems true. That's that, that is an interesting take on it, right? I mean, if you if you say girls aren't good at math, that is a subtle way of saying you don't belong here. You don't belong in this group. And, yeah, absolutely. And that's 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 the heart of imposter syndrome, right? Is when you start playing that tape in your head and say, "I don't belong here. I don't belong in this group." Right. When you internalize it, and you're not even necessarily thinking to yourself consciously, you know, if you're a woman and you're thinking this, you're not necessarily thinking, oh, I think girls can't do math, because if you thought about it sort of explicitly consciously, you would say to yourself, oh, well, you know, I don't think that's true. I know lots of women who can do math. But the danger comes, I think, when you've 
internalized it so deeply you don't even realize that part of you is is playing that tape it's sort of like a subliminal message you yeah. know one of those records yeah. there's a lot of research that says that you know i mean you can just basically expose somebody to a message like that and immediately test them afterwards and they'll do worse right well i i, I kind of want to talk we're talking about um you know stereotypical you know marginalized marginalized groups but the the other thing that i've seen is that a lot of folks who may not be in these marginalized groups okay so i'm talking about myself but i've i've seen that um and i have the, i have this tendency to kind of keep score and so um you know i i go and work with guys that have been programming for longer than i've been out of elementary school or longer than i've been alive and uh you know and so i i feel like i don't measure up with them or um i've also uh, been in situations i mean for example, I started this podcast and I had guys like uh, Aaron Patterson and James Edward Gray on the show and uh you know it it didn't it didn't hurt that we then got Avdi and and Josh who I also admire greatly for for what they've been able to do programming wise. And so you start to downplay what you are capable of because you see that these other people will, people have done a lot more. And uh yeah. it, it it happens and and you keep score on stupid things like you know, how long they've been doing it or, you know, things like that. And and really what it boils down to is it doesn't matter what they can contribute. It matters what you can contribute. Right. Yeah. And I think that's really true. And um, yeah, and I think it's it's very common in everybody to just, you know, especially if you tend to just work with really capable, motivated people to really compare yourself to the people around you and say, well, you know, I'm not as good as so-and-so. He's been programming since he was five, and how will I ever catch up, even if you're actually older? Um, I think one thing that can make it harder if you are also, in an obvious way, not like those other people is, well, you know, if you're a straight cis white guy and you're working with other straight cis white guys, you can say, well, that guy's not as good as me. Maybe he's been programming longer. There's a lot of stuff to compare yourself to, but supposing you're also a woman and you're looking at all these people around you who are total who seem to be total geniuses and they're also all men so there's that added factor of well mm -hmm. wait a second you know i'm also a woman and i don't see any women who are like these people that i'm looking up to so maybe i'll just never be able to be like them because that's just not a level that women rise to and again like it's not like you're thinking this thought process explicitly because if you were you'd probably be able to sort of talk back to it it's that this you know process in your brain just takes place so fast that you don't see it coming yeah and yeah. that women or minorities think that in any way it it kind of terrifies me to be honest and I, i'm really hoping that we can help them identify that and and figure out how to get past it in, in fact let's let's talk a little bit about that how do you identify that you or someone on your team um, might have imposter syndrome yeah that's a, a great question so um well i know that on teams that i've been on um self-deprecating humor is really common and i think that can be a good thing because humor is a good thing. It's a way for people to bond with each other. And if you're sort of putting yourself down, you're definitely not, you know, putting down other people for being in a marginalized group. So it's sort of a safer form of humor. But at the same time, if somebody does it a lot, it could be a sign of, um, of imposter syndrome, maybe. And I think another thing is, at least in my experience, um, at times when 
I was less aware of having imposter syndrome and when it was having more of an effect on me, I would sort of deal with it by withdrawing because if I wasn't asking questions, if I wasn't admitting the need for help, then um, nobody could find out you know, what a loser I really was. Yeah. Um, nobody would know that I really didn't know anything. So I think if somebody seems to be... Um, you know, not too outgoing, not asking too many questions. I mean, it's easy for other people to just think, oh, that person isn't asking questions because they don't need any help. They must already know everything. But of course, in thinking that, you're sort of setting the person up for like the moment they fear, you know, when it eventually gets to be revealed that they've been like not able to make progress because they needed to ask something and they weren't able to. So I think yeah. just like trying to, especially if someone's new, trying to actually be proactive in seeing if they need help instead of just assuming, oh, if they need help, they'll come to you. I think that can be really helpful. And it, you know, it doesn't have to be about profiling somebody because, you know, you think they're in this group that may be more vulnerable to it. It can be something that you can do for everybody because, you know, in the worst case, you say like, hey, do you need whatever? And they say, oh, no, I'm doing whatever else. And then you find out what they're doing. And this, I mean, I could, this could be at work or in an open source project, either way. It's just like, I know nerds, you know, at least stereotypically don't like to initiate communication. Stereotypically, at least, we'd rather be interacting with the computer than with another person. But uh, but everybody needs help sometimes. And so if there's sort of a norm of people taking the risk and initiating it with each other, I think that ends up being a lot more satisfying for most people than a community that consists of a bunch of people just sitting alone at the computer, whether that's in an office or on a volunteer project. I think one of the really scary things about imposter syndrome is it feels so real. Like I feel when, when I have, when I'm feeling it very strongly, it's my reality. My reality is that I don't belong there. And at any moment, my whole life can come crashing down because it, people discover that I don't belong there. And there's no help in people saying, well, you're a good programmer, or you're smart, or you're doing fine, or you're delivering plenty of value. It's like, well, no, I mean, I'm not, but you just don't see it yet. Right. It's yeah. one of those unfalsifiable beliefs because, you know, like Katrina said, no matter how much somebody else reassures you, there's just this thing inside you that believes, yeah, they may be saying that now, but once they really know, they're not going to believe that anymore. Yeah. Or else maybe the or the other thing you might think to yourself is, well, maybe the other person just like, you know, isn't insightful enough themselves to know what a fraud you are. But other people are going to find out eventually. Yeah, yeah. I this is a little bit personal, but for the first year or two of my marriage, my wife. Uh, if you've ever met me and my wife, you know that she's just a wonderful person, and she's a saint. We've been married for 16 years. God bless her, and she hasn't you know, taking a knife to me while I sleep. <laughs> and Lord knows I deserve it. For the first two years or so of our marriage, I slowly became aware of the fact that she didn't really feel like she deserved to have a happy marriage. And she felt like I, I had convinced her that I was in love with her, but she had turned that into a story of, I had a specific form of brain damage. Um, <laughs> and that's why I loved her. 
And I can still remember the day that we were talking about my family and I was telling her how much they loved her. And well, I know they love, and, and, and I realized that she was extending the brain damage metaphor image onto my entire family. And I'm like, you, you don't get this, do you? We don't just love you. We actually like you. And I was like, the lights came on and suddenly this new voice in her head started saying, I am worthy of love. And. I, I'm tearing up just thinking about this because this was such a huge moment for us as a family. And I wonder if imposter syndrome sometimes is like that, where you, you, you have this moment where you realize that this, 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 I'll also draw from autobiography, but um, when I was really, really deeply into Pearl, I was desperate to master it and prove that I could master it. And other programmers would come ask me questions. How do I do this in Perl? How do I do this in Perl? How do I do this in Perl? And I, I, just, I realized one day that I had been bothered three times a day for a month straight with Perl questions by the other people on the team because it was a new tool. And I realized I knew the answer to every single question I had been asked without having to look it up in the Perl cookbook. Maybe I am a little bit good at this programming language. But it took a lot more evidence than yeah. a rational person would have needed. Well, nobody is rational, right? Like, I think a lot of <laughs> us kind of yes. aspire to be or think we are. But I think the more somebody thinks they're rational, the more they're not. And, and yeah, I think this is a really personal topic. And I think your story about your wife is, is a really good one here. Like, I think for me, you know, I grew up, I was a homeschooled kid and I had a parent who... Um, let's say, you know, I, I knew early on that what she said wasn't always in touch with reality. So she told me both, you know, that she loved me and that she, I was smart. But I knew somehow, even when I was really young, that when she said both of these things, it didn't necessarily mean what everybody else meant because she kind of had her own reality. And in particular, she really, for her, for her own identity, she really needed to believe that I was smart, which is not entirely a healthy thing for a parent to, it's not a healthy way for a parent to relate to a kid. So because I came from that right. place, it was hard for me to believe later on, you know, either if someone said that they loved me or that I was smart because, you know, early on, I'd really never had validation of either of those things from somebody that I trusted. And so I think there's more people maybe than we think who've had that kind of experience early on and yeah. i think we should never assume that you know somebody else had a very ideal you know secure uh, i don't know 50s tv show kind of childhood <laughs> i mean we shouldn't assume the opposite either but you know i think that it's a good idea to remember that um different people carry all kinds of traumatic past experiences and to just not assume that somebody kind of had this strong foundation early on that we all wish we could have had um and and just kind of you know be be prepared to compensate for that and sometimes it can mean you know like in your story with your wife saying explicitly to somebody you know that that you value them and in in more of a professional context i think what that ideally would look like is not just saying to somebody like oh you're smart you're good these, these broad things that people see are big and could easily be said for insincere reasons, but I think you know it being specific is really good. So saying like, "Oh, you know, that's that was like some great detective work you did on like isolating that bug. Like that is really 
unique and and not everybody would have been able to find that like you know just specific praise rather than than vague praise because you know it's not too hard i think usually to think a little harder and come up with something more specific to say and i think then it's more believable but of course like you said it's not just like someone's gonna have this epiphany moment from one you know positive comment from somebody else it takes a lot of reinforcements but i think you can be part of that and you can mean more than you realize to other people one of the things that I discovered kind of by accident was that when I found worth within myself, like when I, when I realized my own worth in something, it meant a lot more to me than when other people said something nice about me. And one of the few tactics that I've taken in order to try to handle the imposter syndrome is to do something because it's interesting to me, not because I'm trying to prove something. And so what I ended up doing for a very long time was this, I would just refactor code because it's something that was interesting to me. And I wasn't trying to prove that I'm smart. I wasn't trying to make the code better for someone else um, or even for any business value. But this process of just doing that over and over and taking pleasure and learning things from that made me feel a lot more stable, kind of both mentally but also professionally. And then when I started sharing the experience of what I had learned and what I had observed, a lot of other people started finding that interesting, but I hadn't, I didn't do it out of some idea that other people would find it interesting or be impressed with it. And that had a huge impact on how, on I guess the degree of imposter syndrome that I, I felt, especially while doing that experiment. So I have an interesting question to ask those of us that that have a strong heritage of imposter syndrome. Um, I, I assume most of us have seen this article of, of don't tell your kids they're smart. Yeah. Um, I wonder how many of us were told we were smart as kids. Have, have we talked about that on the show enough that, that we can skim over that? Or do I need to sum that up? Or does somebody else want to sum that up? I know it's come up before. The, the, the short version is if you, if, if you take a bunch of kids and, and split the class in half and give them a puzzle, Third graders, I think, was what they did. And then the, it, it's a really easy puzzle. They all get it right. And then you tell half the kids, good job, you're really smart. And then you tell the other kid, half of the kids, good job, you worked really hard on this. They take away from this a belief. The first group values appearing smart to other people. And the second group takes away appearing to work hard to other people. And so you come back later and you give them a a much harder puzzle, maybe even one that doesn't even have a solution. And the you give the kids a choice between the easy cho- easy puzzle and the hard puzzle. And the ones you told that were smart will choose the easy puzzle because they want to look smart. They want to they want to produce a solved puzzle as quickly and easily as possible. And the ones that you told worked hard will pick the hard puzzle because they want to get to a state of working hard at things. And by the time these kids are in fifth grade, they're they are vastly outperforming their quote unquote smart peers because they are driven and motivated to work. And I think Katrina really touched on that really well, but you know, find something you love and dive into it without, without it having a social aspect of I'm doing this to get this gain or this goal or this reward. Yeah, I find, I read about that study not that long ago and I found it really profound because I feel like my, experience was this extra concentrated 
version of that because you know growing up in my life I just had my mom you know I didn't have teachers I didn't have a lot of adults or even really a lot of other kids so there was really just this one person who was a source of validation and she told me I was smart all the time and she told other people that when I was within earshot and so I despite not really trusting her part of me you know I had nothing else to go on so I kind of internalize that and and yeah like long before i even knew that's that what was happening i internalized this need to come off as as smart and for a while that did work for me for example when i got to college and i learned programming it was easy for me at first especially compared to the other people in my class you know so that was like feeding into this habit that i had i you know kept believing i was smart because i was doing better than the other people and this was easy but the first time I did something that was harder for me, which was the third computer science class I took, which was the algorithms class, um, where we were doing, um, you know, more mathematical, more on paper um, analysis of algorithms and not just programming on the computer. So that was hard for me. And like, I kind of just, you know, I was 15 and I kind of just like lost it a little bit because, you know, it was terrifying because I didn't have the reaction that someone else might have had of, oh, well... On, on this subject, I just need to, you know, put more thought into it and ask for help more and think about it more slowly. I just thought, okay, this proves that, you know, all of that other evidence is like nothing now. It doesn't matter anymore. And this one class has proven that I'm not smart. And mm. kind of the same thing happened writ larger when I went to grad school. So, yeah, like if I ever have kids, I'm <laughs> not going to tell them that they're smart. I mean, I'll tell, I'll, I'll congratulate them for whatever it is they do and kind of try to teach them that they have inherent worth, however you do that. But I won't yep. say that they're smart. And I think even as adults, like as, as programmers, as tech people, you know, how often, if you think about it, how often do you hear somebody talking about someone and saying, Oh, he's so smart or she's so smart. Like I hear that all the time. But maybe it's not really what you like about that person. So, you know, you, it's, it's an interesting exercise if you feel the need to, to praise somebody else even when they're not there and you want to say they're so smart. Well, maybe think about what else could you say about them. Yeah. I, I want to add something to this because my growing up experience, my, my mom was always telling me I was really smart. But she was also telling me, I don't know, I don't think she intended this, but I got picked on quite a bit in school. I mean, I grew up with a name like Chuck Wood and I just you know it kids are kids are mean and that's life and my mom basically told me like whenever I'd come home complaining about the other kids at school that they were jealous of me because I was smarter than them and that that's why I was being picked on so I not only got the you're smart reinforcement but then I got the and it's causing you problems reinforcement so I didn't really know which way to go with it because I wanted to be smart and I identified with being smart, but then I, you know, I I wanted to, I wanted to be accepted too. And so, and and being accepted and being smart were mutually exclusive. So. Right. That is, is really, it was true for me as well. I mean, I had not as much interaction with other kids, but I did sometimes. And my mom would always tell me like, well, they just don't like you because you're smart. So I did kind of believe that for whatever reason. And so I guess I internalized that whenever I didn't get along with other people or whenever other people criticized me, it must be because of that. And as you can imagine, that didn't necessarily lead me towards being able to take criticism well when I was older. Um, So yeah, that can be really another pitfall. And, you know, thinking that, any interaction with someone that doesn't go well is a threat to your 
self-image, um, you know, in my experience, that yeah. is not a recipe for like, you know, good relationships. Yeah, and yeah, I, I, I'm very much that way, and I have to fight that part of my nature a yeah. lot. I, I wonder if one of the first coping strategies you have to adapt if you're going to go down this route of developing imposter syndrome is first get this this mental image of yourself that's incorrect, and then when you meet the inevitable feedback from reality, you have to develop a persecution complex. I certainly did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's an interesting. This is like the Doctor Phil of Ruby show today, isn't it? This is. <laughs> This is, I, I guess we need to add the disclaimer. We are not psychologists. Right. <laughs> we don't even play one on TV. Yeah. Right. Th- this is not this is not intended as any kind of advice. <laughs> <laughs> this is not intended to diagnose, treat any disorder. Yeah. <laughs> the FDA has not approved these comments. No, but that's that's really really interesting. Yeah. That that's yeah. Anyway, um it it's really kind of a funny thing, but uh um, I, I want to talk a little bit about what we can do to help ourselves, and then I'd also like to talk about what we can do to help other people. Yeah, how do we fix these guys? Well, <laughs> so just one, call them out in a team meeting and say, you. So one thing that, that I've done that, that really helps, there, there are like three things that have really helped me with some of this stuff. One is is that whenever I complete something, I have to recognize it. And, and so I just look at it and I say, yeah, that, that gave value. And if somebody else gives me a pat on the back, I realize that I gave them value. So I don't have to measure up with anyone else, but as long as I'm getting the feedback, hey, this has value, then, then that's something that, that I do. Um, another one is, and this is, I, I don't know exactly how to say it because I hate bringing up religion on the show because it's not really on topic, but, a lot of the things that I do as far as uh, prayer and reading scriptures and participating in church activities, you know, and, and there are equivalents, you know, for, for most belief systems for this. But going and doing that and deriving some self-worth just out of the fact that, um, you know, I have a conviction that God exists and that he loves me and that, you know, that, that those things exist and, and that there are reasons why I have value outside of the fact that, you know, I'm good at something um, is something that helps. Um, th- those are two things that come to mind right away that, that have really helped. Yeah, for me personally, actually, I would agree with the religion part. And I'm saying this as someone who identified as an atheist for most of my life. But um, I was going to Quaker meetings pretty regularly for a while. I don't exactly want to say I'm a Quaker because then I'd feel like I was an imposter Quaker. But in any case, um, doing that really gave me this... Well, I wouldn't say it gave me it. It strengthened, anyway, the feeling that I had of having worth and having value that was not about my accomplishments or how much value I could create for capitalism or anything external. You know, it it just strengthened my feeling that I had inherent value. And it's kind of hard to explain. It sounds kind of fuzzy and woo-woo. But for me, anyway, that was really helpful. And, and in a way that had nothing to do with, like, doctrine or, like, specific beliefs, but just, like, this sense of there being more meaning in life than just what you do. So for me, that was helpful. It wouldn't be helpful to everybody. Um, Another thing that's helped for me is learning to acknowledge being wrong, learning to acknowledge having made mistakes and um, not knowing things. Like I kind of try to practice doing those things as often as I can, and I get plenty of chances since like most people I'm wrong all the time. I wouldn't say I'm perfect at that, but I, th- you know, part of what fed my 
imposter syndrome before was just like never admitting I was wrong and never admitting mistakes because any of that would have been like adding more evidence that I wasn't perfect. So, um, but the more I can do those things and the more I can see that the world doesn't explode when I do it and that people still like me and maybe in some cases people even like me better, that's helped a lot. And, um, and the third thing that just came to mind right away was trying to put work out there early and get feedback on it early. Like I do this with my blog posts. I'll send them to a small group of people first for comments when I feel like they're in a very, very early draft and I have to fight my impulse to work on them more and work on them more so that um, I never even get them out there and just kind of try to send something as early as possible. And, um, and then I can see that I can receive criticism about them, but also that seeing that early work is not going to make people think less of me. And that's been really helpful too. It's kind of hard to say in retrospect what's helped me get to where I am because so much of it is just like this experience that I can't put into words, but those are the specific things that come to mind. One of the things that have helped me a lot is working really hard at something difficult and making progress on it. Like it's just that feeling of it's really, really hard and somehow I am progressing, like not measuring myself against someone else's um, coordinate system, but sort of more of a polar coordinates where I'm the center of the universe and I'm just measuring compared to myself. Well, everyone, this is a, a dirty secret of the universe, is that everyone is the center of their universe, right? <laughs> um, one, of the, one of the best advice I ever received back in my college days was somebody you know, and grizzled white hair. I'm like, do you have any life advice, Don? And Don put his arm around my shoulders and he says, son, figure out what corner of the universe you can wrestle to the ground and then go wrestle it to the ground. And yeah, that, that, that's, that's brilliant advice, Katrina. It, the, something that you measure up yourself. And then I, I, I found out after getting that advice that I was really bad at finding out um, what corner of the universe I had any any hope of wrestling to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to, back to, to Chuck's uh, comment and, uh, uh, and Tim's, for those of us that are, you know, less uh, Gnostic in their uh, or less deistic, I guess, in their or theistic in their, their, their belief systems, I think any system that gives you unconditional love and it gives you access to that. Right. So, um, and in, in non-religion context, right. In, in Buddhism, just accepting acceptance, right. Is, is, is what they call it, right. Just accept that the universe is accept that you are. And if you're, you know, a complete atheist and follow no religious tradition, then, uh, what, what Brene Brown in her vulnerability book, she says, just, just say your, say to yourself, I'm enough. I, I think if you can get that message into your head and rehearse it and play that tape over and over, I think that can be very, very helpful. So I, I've been listening to a lot of business shows lately, podcasts, and, uh, especially on Mixergy, they, they've been talking to these sales guys and, some of these guys really uh, buy into affirmations. So you basically write your affirmations on the mirror. You look in the mirror. You speak them aloud. H- have you guys found that that helps? Absolutely no. not. Because <laughs> it, every it seems every like- time you say every day in every way, I am getting better and better. This little voice in the back of my head says bullshit. 
No, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think, I feel like that wouldn't help for me either. I read a study recently that said that actually people who did affirmations were less likely to achieve their goal because if someone was spending time saying like, I don't know, you know, say they say there's a, themselves, I'm a good programmer. They wouldn't, they would lose the need to actually become a good programmer and they wouldn't yeah. work on it. Just taking that as an example. Yeah. Um, and it seems believable to me. It's like, if you're saying, well, I mean, it's not about saying I'm good enough the way I am. Cause I mean, hopefully everyone should, should believe that. But if you say I'm good enough at doing X, then you stop needing to spend your time working on X. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's, there's also, I, I read a similar study that, that, yeah, the, the imposter syndrome is so strong that if you, if you give it a, it comes down to, am I smart or do I work hard? If you give it, if you try to feed yourself, I'm smart, right? I'm, I'm a beautiful person. I'm a good programmer. Your brain will start supplying evidence to prove this claim false. I have found a set of affirmations that do work and they have to do with identity where you basically say, I am the kind of person who never gives up on this kind of problem. And your brain says, uh, yeah, what about this time you gave up and what about this time came up? But then at seven o'clock at night when you want to go home because it's a Friday and there's a bug in the code, that's when that little voice says, you know what? I am the kind of person who would stay and bulldog this. And you, you then produce results, which produces evidence that you can then reinforce your, your, yourself with. So affirmations usually don't work the way they're intended. Uh, but I think if you focus on identity and give yourself programming for motivation rather than programming for, you know, lying to yourself. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, actually, that reminds me of another study that I read. Um, it was about, I think, physics students, and they did sort of two experiments. So they they like give they gave like these were college students entering a class, and they gave them sort of a, a quiz to determine how prepared they were. And they found that on the average, the, the women students didn't do as well as the men. But then they did a second experiment where they asked the women students to spend maybe like five minutes doing this like little writing exercise, not a a long essay or anything about like their core beliefs and their values and like what they believed made them who they were. And if they spent five minutes doing that, the gender gap went away. The women did just as well That's as cool. the men. And I think that shows that just like spending some time thinking about like your beliefs, your values, what makes you who you are can be like self-motivating because then you actually want to go and live up to those things. And I think this, what I thought of listening to that last bit, it might sound like kind of out of left field, but I found that writing a dating profile can sort of have the purpose of that exercise because like, <laughs> it's not necessarily wow. very effective in finding dates, but when I've worked on my OkCupid okay profile, it kind of encouraged me, encourages me to think about like, well, how would I actually describe myself like to somebody I didn't know me, who didn't know me, you know, what are really my strengths and not just like professionally, but like all kinds of strengths, everything. And like, you know, I thought of things about myself that I wouldn't have thought about, I guess, any other way. Like, well, one thing about me that I think is really it that persists is that I'm always curious and I'm always interested in learning. Like, you know, I get depressed a lot, but even when I am, like, I still want to learn new things. Um, so that, so that was something that occurred to me when I was doing that exercise. And so like, I, I found that it's like, you know, writing a dating profile is less useful for dating than it is for just like figuring out, you know, how, how you want to present yourself. Yeah. That's really interesting. 
Back when you said that uh, people were less likely to achieve their goals if they were saying affirmations in the mirror, I thought you were going to say that they don't do it because they spend all their time talking to themselves in the mirror. <laughs> Who's a pretty boy? Who's a pretty boy? Well, it's not really a problem until the mirror starts talking back, and then you might want to examine things a little bit more. Yeah. So, so we we've talked a bit about like how we get over um, imposter syndrome, and the only other thing that that came to mind while you guys were talking was that I've I've had to get to the point where I tell people no, and that's really hard for me because I don't want people to hate me. And uh, getting getting there and just being able to tell people no is another thing, you know, just being able to prioritize things and decide what's important to me and then do it. Anyway, let's let's switch over and talk about helping other people. So if we kind of identify that somebody has imposter syndrome or, you know, doesn't give themselves enough credit, telling them that they're smart enough or good enough or whatever doesn't seem to help. We've kind of established that. So what can you do? Ooh, can I can I make a suggestion? Uh huh. Ask them to help you with something. Yeah, I love having Avdi on the show. <laughs> I I I wish Avdi wouldn't talk so much during the show, and when he does talk, he goes on and on. <laughs> so could you maybe elaborate? Stop. Yeah. Uh, how do you even elaborate on that? I mean, ask them to help okay. you with something. You know, it's 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 pretty it's pretty self-explanatory. Okay, yeah. but but then um, how do you? How do you make it evident that they're actually helping, that they're making a contribution, and that it's not just because they're sitting next to you, pair programming on whatever you're working on, for example? It's inherently apparent. Like you, you yeah. needed help, and they helped you. And you're, and they're the one you went to. Yeah. And and then you make sure you let them know that it made a huge difference. When yeah. They came in. More uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's good too. But you know, I mean, I think you know, just like if if I were in that position, if I were them, just like knowing. I don't know, knowing that somebody asked me to help, but also just knowing that I helped, you know, mm-hmm. like I don't necessarily need them. It's always nice to hear that was super helpful. It's super nice to hear that. But I can just think back to the fact that, you know, they had that question or they they were staring dumbly at their screen and I pointed out the mistake that they'd made or the thing they were missing. Holy crap. I do know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. I can remember the, the, the flip side of it, of, of telling people, I can remember... The first time I was in stand-up meeting and one of the senior programmers said, I was working on this problem and uh, I got stuck and uh, Dave came over and helped me and uh, and we knocked it out. Um, and so Dave was really indispensable in this. And I mean, I, I could have floated away. I just, I just, I just, I felt so great being recognized in front of the team by one of the, you know, by one of the authorities on the team. And in retrospect, it, I realized that that was his, part of his personality, that he was very, very good at, at dishing out praise to other, you know, about people in front of other people. And, uh, I've tried to adopt that habit as a team thing that, you know, when I'm in standup, I, I, I try to recognize who helped me, you know, and how did I get where I was? And uh, I don't know if it works, but it, it certainly worked for me. Uh, and people, so people that do that are the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a wonderful, wonderful skill to have. It's it's one you know when you kind of put your ego aside, when people put their ego aside and and just you know say so and so helped me out so much, yeah. I wouldn't have gotten through the problem without them. You know, it's yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, there's something um, Simon Peyton Jones said, which is that credit 
is not a limited resource. It's not scarce. So you can always give people credit and there will always be more credit to give. You don't have to worry about, you know, if this is something small, you know, you can still give someone credit for it. And I think it's always helpful. That's so interesting because <laughs> if two people co-write a book, yeah, you don't give each of them half the esteem you would have given somebody who wrote the entire book. Yeah. They're both right. authors, right? Yeah. Are, are there any other things? Yeah. Um, Maybe somebody in about, department or something? Thinking about the last couple comments, I think something worth saying explicitly, at least to me, is that imposter syndrome is a lot about isolation because when you're isolated, you kind of get lost in these, like, cognitive distortions, you know, where you're not sure where you stand with other people. And when you're more connected to other people, I think it's easier to not get lost in those sort of internal cognitive distortions because you have external confirmations. So if you're in a group and you see someone who's more isolated, you know, you might assume that they don't want to be involved, that they prefer to do things on their own. And some people do prefer that, but they might also just be waiting to be invited in. And some people need, you know, a stronger invitation than others. So it can be like if you're at work and, you know, there's someone like having lunch alone, you know, maybe ask them if they want to join you. Like such, you know, a little thing like that can make them feel like they're more part of the group and that can lead to the kinds of interactions like the rest of you were just talking about. So I think like actively trying to include people um, is is really important for um, potentially fighting imposter syndrome and others. One more thing. I think that some people might have the idea that imposter syndrome is something that you have strongly and then you fight it and it goes away. Um, and that hasn't been my experience. I My experience is that the intensity of the imposter syndrome varies greatly from from moment to moment and day to day. And even though I've found strategies that do help fight it, I guess, there are moments when it just kind of takes over my life again for a little while. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that, too. Um, there's this, like, narrative that's really dominant that, like, you know, if you have any kind of mental or physical illness, it's something that you conquer, you know, that you triumph over, you get over it, and then it's over, you're cured. And right. in my experience, it's not like that. I mean, I also have depression I have for most of my life. And I really wanted to believe that narrative that, you know, at some point you get over it. But I've realized it's more like a disability. You know, you live with it, you make accommodations for yourself, yep. you hope that other people will make accommodations for you. And with the posture syndrome, yeah, I agree with Katrina and that like, you don't, it doesn't go away, but I think you can get better at becoming more consciously aware of when it's happening and at talking back to it. There's something called cognitive behavioral therapy that's based on this idea of talking back to a thought or a feeling, mm -hmm. and you can do it with a therapist or you can do it on your own. But the, the key insight is just because you... Um, just because you feel a certain way, it doesn't mean you have to form a particular thought about it. You can learn to notice your thoughts and start forming different thoughts, even though you can't control what you feel. Yeah. There was a, boy, this is a, a really autobiographical episode for me, but um, I, I had a manager who was, was brilliant at managing imposter syndrome, I guess, in retrospect. Um, we had some big meeting that I had to present at and I was freaking out and I, and I was, <laughs> I was freaking out at people like loudly projectile freaking and like the first time I freaked out at him, he's like, calm down, it'll be fine. And, you know, when you tell somebody to toughen up, 
what you're really saying, it, you're, you're, you're kind of negating their experience, right? You're saying, yeah. don't be you, be me, right? Yep. You know? And so the second time I freaked out at him, he was like, well, you'll be fine. Everything will be fine. The third time I freaked out at him, he said, okay. I'm like, what? He says, look, you're going to get through this and you're going to be fine. And however you need to do, you know, if, if you need to freak out in order to get through this, go for it. Freak out all you want. And it ended the freak out, like, like instantly. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I, I suddenly realized, is freaking out helping me at all? No. And, and, and the secret to it was he, he had led with, you're going to get through this just fine either way. And if you want to freak out about it, go for it. And so I wonder sometimes if, yeah, if, if you can, if you find somebody who's doing imposter syndrome, if you can just look at them and say, you're going to do fine at this. If you want to freak out, if you want to, you know, if you want to feel like an imposter, go for it. There, there's a subtle neurolinguistic programming hack in that, that phrase, right? There's a brain hack in there. You're, 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 you're insinuating that they are choosing this. Um, and it's not so much that you're accusing them of the choice so much as you are hinting that they have a choice. And if you combine that with you are enough, I wonder if that's a good one-two punch to, you know, I'm not saying it's going to work in, you know, in, in all the cases. And it's, and again, it's certainly not a cure. It's just, a, it's just a coping technique that worked for me in that one particular instance. But that was a real surprise to me. The you're choosing thing tends to piss me off something fierce. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, the, 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 the accusation of why do you choose to do this to yourself? Mm. Yeah. The way he said it was, that's okay. If you need to do that, go for it. You know, and it, in that particular time and place, it was not, you know, why do you keep impostering yourself? It, it wasn't like, you know, why do you keep hitting yourself? It was, it was more like, Hey, if you need to do that, great. You know, how, what can I do to support you? I want to build on that a little bit. You know, when I got started programming professionally, I'm sure I've told this story before, but I was 18 and I was in a great big defense contractor company. And I was, you know, as a kid, I had long hair and I was surrounded by people in, in suits and business casual who had sort of mastered, as far as I could tell, had mastered the art of being grownups. You know, they, they wore the right clothes and they knew all the right words. You know, and I spent, I spent years there and I never, I felt, felt like I never, figured out half the stuff they were talking about. <laughs> um, they, they knew all these acronyms, like the number of acronyms in that environment is just unbelievable. And they were always talking about deliverables and shalls and, <laughs> and different types of contracts. And, you know, I don't even remember most of the, the, the terms that they would use back then, but it was, you know, it was a whole nother language. And that was an environment where it was very easy to feel like an imposter because I didn't even speak the language. I had no idea. You know, half the time I was just kind of nodding my head along with what they were saying and not really being sure what they were saying. And, and yet clearly everybody else, you know, understood what was going on. But the weird thing was, you know, I would have these reviews, these annual review, performance reviews, and, and they'd tell me I was doing great. They'd tell me I was doing like, you know, doing above my pay grade. They just couldn't, couldn't promote me because I didn't have a degree. But, but, uh, <laughs> You know, and that would piss off people who did have, who did have degrees. But, but you know, still, I would go back to feeling like an imposter, feeling like they had gotten a course in being, you know, not just be in being like business professionals, but in being grownups that I had never gotten. Yeah. And here's my perspective on on that from, you know, from where I'm sitting today. I believe we're all imposters. Every single one of us. 
I think, you know, we look around and we think that other people got the special course when we were like out sick or something on how to be a grown up, on how to be a professional. And the truth is we all are kids putting on grown up clothes and playing games. Um, I believe that very strongly about just life in general. And we're all figuring it out as we go along. I mean, and you know, sometimes we realize that, wow, some, you know, other people had figured out a part of the game long before, before we did. I, you know, figured out at some point in my career that I had been buying my, my pants with the hem, the, the hemline, uh, like a couple of inches too high and was showing my <laughs> socks. And I suddenly got incredibly embarrassed about that. Um, you know, I was doing that for years, completely oblivious nerd, you know, but just stupid little things like that. But I think that, that, you know, we're all imposters. We're all play acting. We're all kids playing these games and you the thing that you fundamentally have to realize about um that is that they are games all of these protocols that we have whether they're how we act how we how we talk how what we wear you know they are games that we play and we figure out the rules as we go along but but in the end they're games they're not like a pass fail at life i'd like to build on that for a moment realizing or accepting that they're games makes it a lot easier to try to hack them which actually means you're doing them better. Right. Yes. Well, the other thing, too, is that I think we tend to, when we look at other people, we, we definitely only see the parts that they are willing to show us most of the time, and everybody puts their best face on. And that's part of the game, which we're talking about here. But So it's it's way easy to say, well, you know, these neighbors obviously have it all together. You know, they have a great marriage. Their kids are perfect. They're, you know, whatever it is that, that you wish that you had that they apparently have in their life. And uh, and then, you know, every once in a while, you'll get reminded that, that nobody's life's perfect and that they're winging it just like you are. Yeah. You know, somebody asked to sleep on their on your couch for a while because yeah. things aren't so great at home. And, you know, for a long time, I believed that everybody else, everybody else's house um, was immaculate until <laughs> one day I. I it occurred to me that those people were were like spending a day cleaning before they had guests over. Oh, yep. my wife does that. I didn't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. There's nobody here but us four. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, it's 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 so true. And you know, and that's her manifestation of her imposter syndrome. You know, she she feels like she has to have everything perfectly the way that her mom did things, or you know, that that people expect her to be, and. Yeah, I, I think that's really profound, and I think there's a lot there that we can take away from it. I also think we're toward the end of our time, so are, is there anything else that we need to discuss on imposter syndrome other than just encourage people to um, or, take a hard uh, look and figure out how to make things better? I guess I wanted to just add to the list of you know what to do about it. I guess in the part that was about maybe just you know acknowledging it and accepting it can be useful. I also think just... Naming it as imposter syndrome can be useful in and of itself. If you could say to yourself, or maybe if you could encourage someone else to say, well, I'm experiencing some imposter syndrome right now, huh? And maybe just, you know, naming it can mean that what otherwise would have been this moment of like self sabotaging could become neutralized a little just because you acknowledge to yourself that that's what you're doing. It doesn't have to be some heavy-duty 
process of you know telling yourself that you're not going to think this way. It can just be like, "Hi, okay, I'm I'm having this reaction. Maybe it's because blah." And then you realize why it's happening, and you realize it doesn't mean you have to do anything differently. You can just keep going. One last thing that I think might be helpful sometimes, maybe not all the time, is to realize the most ridiculous situations with imposter syndrome and tell them as a joke to other people. Mm-hmm. As in, this really happened. I got this job and I had a three-month trial period. And every single day of that trial period, I expected someone to take me aside and say, you know what? We really like you, but this isn't working out. You're not smart enough. And then on the the 90-day mark, I actually went and told them, like, it's the last day. Like, if you want to do this, you have to do it now. You know? <laughs> and I, in retrospect, I think it's hilarious that I so seriously thought that they weren't going to keep me on that and I felt this obligation of letting them know so that I didn't have this permanent contract that they couldn't get out of easily. And it's ridiculous. Yep. But it's also a good joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's it's very real in the time, but time but crisis plus time equals humor, right? Right. Yeah, the the flip side though is is that uh if you don't recognize imposter syndrome, you may wind up doing or not doing things out of fear and mm-hmm. and ruining your chance at something good. And, yep. and, and so, um, almost every time that you experience it, it's probably unfounded, but at the same time, you know, be aware because the, the only person that imposter syndrome is going to hurt is you yeah. and, and you, you need to be aware of it so that you don't let it get in the way of your ultimate success. Cause that's, I mean, that's what this show's about. Heck, you know, it's about, you know, succeeding in whatever you're doing. And, and we talk about some of the tools of the trade and Ruby and stuff. And we talk about some of the other things that are involved, like communicating and, and, you know, imposter syndrome, but, you know, go out and succeed and don't let this get in your way. Yeah. Go out and try, go out and work hard. Yep. You know, prove don't it worry wrong. About the, the, the success will follow or, or lessons will follow, but go out and try. Yeah. Yep. And if you, if you recognize that you have imposter syndrome, Seriously, go out and prove yourself wrong. Yeah. There's a, a, a quote that I read, uh, last week that has really, really kind of helped me with a little bit. There's, you've, we've all heard that, that quote about, you know, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And that honestly hasn't been a very particularly useful quote for me. And the revision of it that I heard recently was, what would be worth doing even if I did fail? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that because that has made me, I, I'm saddling up the horse and I'm, I'm lining up against some windmills now because, you know, if, even if I fail tilting at this windmill, it's going to be worth it. And now all of a sudden it's about the process and about playing and about having fun. And, you know, it's, it, it's about working hard rather than guaranteeing success and getting credit and, and, and winning and all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. One of the hilarious versions of that that I heard a few years ago was, what would you do if you knew that you would never, ever gain or lose any weight ever again? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be right back. There's a wonderful little ice cream shack down the street. <laughs> I'll meet um, you there, yeah, Dave. Yeah, one more lesson that along those lines, something I learned from my therapist is to to see whatever you do as an experiment. It's like, you know, if I decide to 
move to San Jose. And I, I see that as an experiment, and it's like, well, if I don't like it, I learn that I don't want to live in San Jose. If I do like it, I learn that I want to live in San Jose. Either way, I've gained some knowledge, and there was something positive about that. So if you see things as experiments, then I think it's easier to not worry about, like, well, am I going to fail at this or am I going to succeed? Right. Yeah. That is so it, crucial. It, it takes the catastrophe out of it, right? Yeah. It, it, it's like there's, there's two outcomes here. Either we can have smashing success and win and be wonderful people, or we can learn some things. Yep. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, is, and, and this is the other part of it that really nails me is that, yeah, it's like, well, if I fail, then, well, then I fail, you know, and, and, you know, I'm a failure. Yeah. yeah and, and, and instead of looking at it and going, well, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? Like going freelance, you know, it was, well, you know, if, if I fail at it, then we could lose the house and we could blah, blah. And then, then it's like, no. Then I just go get a, another job. You know, yep. I mean, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? Well, I'm in a little more debt and I'm right back where I was. Yep. And, and generally that's the case in most, with most of this stuff is the worst thing that could happen is you wind up back where you were with a little bit more experience and maybe a ding on the head. I, I was, uh, I'm going to use Katrina's advice, um, uh, about telling the joke, but, um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, so I've uh, Chuck and I finished up our contract together about a month ago, uh, and or maybe more. And uh, uh, I, I've got some stuff in the works, so I haven't been job hunting. I haven't been looking for another contract, and this has been preying on my need to have cash flow. And I don't have any because I'm working on this other thing. And we were out driving around and Liz said, Oh, can we run to the bank and, and, and do this deposit? And I'm like, no, no, we can't. And she's like, why? And I said, because every minute I spend away from the computer is a minute I spend not working on the thing that I have in the works, which brings us one step closer to financial ruin, which brings us one <laughs> step closer to losing the house, which brings us one step closer to you divorcing me because I'm an absolutely horrible person. It's, <laughs> I cannot go to the bank because it will end our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually said all of that to her. And by the time I got to the end of it, she was laughing. So it was, it was nice that we could find humor actually in the moment. But we did not go to the bank. No, <laughs> we did not. <laughs> yeah, but we create these scenarios in our head that that's what's going to happen. The world will end. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, I, I hate to cut this off, but we really do need to get to the picks. And uh, I, I have to get off this call in like 10 minutes. So. Okay. But but thanks for coming, Tim. It's, it's yes, been really, was, really you. helpful. This was, I, I knew going in, this was going to be kind of an uncomfortable episode for me. And uh, you, you, you did not fail to deliver. And I want to thank you for that. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, this has been a really, really, this has been an important episode. And it was really, really good having you on. Yeah. And I have to, I, I have to admit that I thought, well, I, I thought I'd be saying something like, well, I've experienced this once or twice. And, and I sure hope this helps people. But, but it, it's really kind of struck a deep chord for me. So. <laughs> yeah, it's it, imposter syndrome isn't something you experience once or twice. It's a cloud that <laughs> hangs over your life every freaking day. <laughs> yep. All right. Avdi, what are your picks? Crash plan. Crash plan is my pick. Um, I've been using it as my backup strategy for a while now on several machines. Um, and I like the fact that it's uh, kind of the, the same tool across multiple operating systems. And it also supports... 
backing up to the cloud and backing up to local drives and backing up to other people's computers and pretty much backing up anywhere you want. And the other day I borked a, a Git repo uh, in the process of trying to rewrite some commits. And I hunted it the, down the backup from a few hours ago on CrashPlan, downloaded it and fixed it and I, all was well. So um, uh, there have been a few other incidents like incidents like that. I haven't I've never, I haven't had to restore a, a completely hosed machine, but uh, there have been a few things where it's like, oh, I screwed that up. Well, go get the backup. I worked for a backup company for almost two years. I ran their tech support department, their customer support, and I can tell you horror stories. So it's mm. a good idea to back up your machine. Yeah. Um, Katrina, what are your picks? I've got two today. Uh, the first is Hyperbole and a Half. It's a it's a comic and blog, and um, her latest entry is about depression, and it's just really honest and and funny and sad at the same time. So, depression part two, and I'm not sure what part one was. Um, that was really cool. The other pick is a talk by Sandy Metz at LeConf that was about working really hard and achieving things, um, not through any sort of talent, but through grit. And um, I don't have a link to the video yet because I don't think it's out. So I'm going to link to um, a reference that Sandy had. And that's a TED Talk by Angela Lee Duckworth called The Key to Success Grit. It's a really interesting talk. So um, I'm just going to leave the link to that. Those sound good. Uh, Dave, what are your picks? Uh, I got a whole bunch. I'm just going to skim over them real quick. I've been playing around with Angular, uh, Angular JS. It's kind of an alternative to Ember. Uh, I'm really, really liking it. It's, it's definitely got some warts. It's not perfect, but there's some, some things about Ember that I didn't like, notably trying to get started in Ember, uh, was really, really hard. And getting started with Angular is really, really easy. And so, uh, I've been, been playing around with that. If you want to see some just insanely cool things that your web browser can do um, now that it's 2013, go to 3JS.org, uh, T-H-R-E-E-J-S.org. They've got some things that uh, they basically figured out DirectX for the web browser. They can tie into, there's an OpenGL, uh, it's called WebGL, and if your browser supports the WebGL framework, you can open up a canvas that has a link directly to the GPU on your graphics card, which means you can write JavaScript that can throw out a hundred thousand 3D objects. There's, there's a galaxy rendering that has the nearest hundred thousand mapped stars in a 3D map of where they are that you can fly around through and rotate and spin and, and click to look. It, it's, it's just astonishing. And then a pick that's kind of topical for the show today. I can't believe I actually had to go to the picks page and make sure this hadn't actually been picked before, but the feeling good handbook by, uh, Dr. David Burns. This book is old. It's, it's, it's from the eighties, but it was one of the best books on CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. This is a book on debugging your brain. It's the, it's the, the operator's manual for your brain. He goes over seven or nine thinking errors, cog, you know, rational cognitive errors that your brain, uh, will, will, will trigger. And he explains why they are cognitive errors. Um, things like fortune telling, you know, predicting that this is going to happen. Things like catastrophization, you know, like going to the bank will end our marriage. These are thinking errors. And then he gives you scripts and patches to fix them to, you know, 
little hooks to detect when you're doing them and patches to apply to try and fix them. It, it won't cure everything, but it will give you a robust suite of things that you can use to try and combat, you know, when you're feeling down and you want to know why am I feeling down? Oh, it's because I'm stuck in a loop of these three thoughts and two of them are thinking errors and one of them is just an unfortunate fact. And if you can undo the two thinking errors, you can get out of the loop. And so it's it's called the Feeling Good Handbook. Uh, I think there's a workbook with it um, that I used to own and the workbook is also good, but the, the book itself um, has quizzes and exercises where you can practice and, and, and really go through. So, And then just as a bonus one, also another book that I found really, really helpful when I was in college and was feeling really depressed uh, is a book called You, Don't, you Can't Afford the Luxury of a Negative Thought. And this is a, a book for, uh, they actually wrote it for terminal cancer patients who basically wanted to optimize the amount of happiness that they had left. And, uh, it's just, uh, if, if you want a, a buffet of quick thoughts that you can read, cause it, like each page is a completely separate positive thought. And so, uh, that's that book. You can't afford the luxury of a negative thought. There are a couple of old books in the CBT, uh, repertoire. Um, but I think they're both great. So them's my picks. Awesome. Um, I'll go ahead and go next. Um, I have a couple of picks. I recently picked up, well, so I've, I've gone through some, some, uh, stuff lately. I went through the, the burnout and the burnout, burnout that I went through after that contract that Dave and I were talking about. And then <laughs> after I got through that, I was a little bit, I, I, I hate to use the word depressed because it has so many connotations and I don't know what it means to everybody, right. but I really just didn't feel like myself. And I, I really had a hard time just working, getting stuff done. On top of that, I, I was going through a little bit of imposter syndrome because I was I pulled into a project that uh, didn't play to the core technological strengths that I have. And so I was dealing with that as well. And um, and so I was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go with things. And um, so the first thing that I, I want to encourage people to do is to get a piece of paper or I did it on my whiteboard, but I just wrote down all the stuff I have going on. And then I wrote down all of the stuff that I want to want to do, where I want to go, what I, what, what I want to accomplish. And when I did that, I started to realize that a lot of the things that I want to do and want to accomplish, I can. And so, um, you know, just thinking about it, then the next thing that I did, and, and this is my first, I guess, official pick other than just writing this stuff down, is I put it all into Omni, uh, Omni Focus, which is the, the program that I use for, um, managing all of my to-dos and stuff. And I know I've picked it before, but I'm going to pick it again. And uh, so, you know, I put like next actions and the things that I need to get done for it and stuff like that. And then um, uh, I'm starting to formulate specific goals for the year and uh, put that all into place and then just, you know, do it again, you know, break it down, decide which ones are the priorities to get done this year. Um, and I'm hoping to set enough hard goals to not be able to accomplish all of them. And that way I feel like I really pushed myself and worked hard to get stuff done. But, um, anyway, I'm, I'm going to pick some and I'm going to go, I'm going to do my best to get them done. So, uh, OmniFocus and then just, uh, setting goals and writing stuff down. The other pick that I have is, um, an iPhone app that I found on iFreaks. We were talking about Git. We were talking to somebody from GitHub, uh, Josh Abernathy. 
and uh, he mentioned that uh, he had worked on the iPhone app for GitHub and that it wasn't terrific. Well, there is a terrific uh, GitHub app for iPhone, and it's called iOctocat. And um, I, I don't know that you can do um, code on your phone or on your iPad very well and then commit it to Git. And I don't know if I'd want to because I don't have a lot of the feedback systems that I have on a regular system. But other than that, like browsing through my uh, projects on GitHub and seeing what the, what issues are filed against my projects and all of my organizations and stuff, it's got all of that stuff in there. And it's super. So it's iOctocat. And uh, I'll put a link to uh, iOctocat and to the source code. The source code is actually open source on GitHub. So you can see it if you're interested. Tim, what are your picks? Uh, yeah, so one of them is the Unix Haters Handbook, which is a classic, but it I just found out it's online now, the nice. full text. And the reason I'm recommending this is that I think Snark can be a really powerful anti-imposter syndrome tool, which is to say there's a lot of monoculture and a lot of hero worship in the geek community, And I, but I think like if you can see that people hate Unix, you can accept that there's not one right way to do software or one right way to be a hacker. So I don't mean the kind of snark that's aimed at putting people down who are already marginalized. I just mean the kind that's aimed at institutions or people or projects that are that do have power and that are entrenched. So it's not that you have to agree, but I think the kind of humor in the book is useful for seeing, oh, people actually disagree. And that means, you know, there's not one right way to do it. And um, the other one that I have is a blog post I'm going to paste. It's um, from James Sheldon called It's Okay for Someone Else to Be Wrong. The blog post has a really good real-life scenario about um, seeing that someone else is saying something that's wrong, but allowing them to be wrong, not having the need to correct them. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show again, Tim. It was, like yeah, I said, thank it, you. It, thank it you. Really thanks for inviting it. me. Really struck a deep chord, and uh, I didn't expect that. So, great. I appreciate it all the more for that. A few things: we are in the top fifty in iTunes under technology, I believe. But if you could go and leave us a review, it'll help us move up in the rate ratings, and that would be awesome. And uh, other than that, go sign up for Ruby Rogues Parlay. At, that's at parlay.rubyrogues.com. And we're gonna do a Rogues Only episode next week about something that we will discuss after the show. And we will catch you all next week. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.